If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians as we are going to consider uh, the greatness of our God with this text that we are going to look at this morning. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 down through 20. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Let's hear the word of the Lord. Let's start in 14. Let's start in 13. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Please be seated. Please pray for me as I preach this text, and pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sinful creatures. We are often slow to hear your word. And we often, Lord, forget it. So pray, O God, that you would be with us this morning. Be with me as I preach the scriptures. Be with your people as they hear it. We pray, O God, that we would get a greater respect, a greater understanding, be more in awe of our Savior as we consider what this teaches us. Do bless us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Lord's Day evening, Charles Reed was talking about when they started Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, There were leaders in the OPCUS that recognized that we needed a new seminary, uh, that um, Princeton, which at one time had been a stalwart for the truth, under the leadership of Archibald Alexander, Columbia under James Henley Thornwell, Union under Robert L. Dabney. All of these schools had rejected much of the truth of Scripture. They had rejected inerrancy. And there was liberal theology being taught to students who were going out to minister in the churches. So they started RTS, and they had $5,000. And you remember, as Charles told us last week, one man said, you can't start a seminary with $5,000. And Charles said it was Sam Patterson. I thought it was Dr. Smith, but maybe you're right. Sam Patterson said, um, how big is your God? When they said, you can't start a seminary with $5,000. And indeed, RTS in Jackson was started. And now they have, I think, a campus here. And I think there's one in Charlotte. And I think there's one down in Orlando as well. What I want us to consider this morning, and you to consider this morning, as you go through your days of your life, think about what you do throughout the week. 
Think about your fears. Think about how much God is on your mind and how great your trust is in our God. How big is your God? Uh, What is he capable of doing? How big is your God will determine many things in your life. Your understanding of how big your God is will determine many things in your life. Uh, It will determine how you do during trials. It will determine how faithful you are in worship. It will determine how seriously you take sin. It will determine how you get comfort or not comfort from the forgiveness that God gives to us. Uh, how determined, I mean, it will determine how much you revere our God. These verses in the book of Colossians are marvelous. The whole first chapter in the book of Colossians is just wonderful. Because it presents to us instructions about the greatness of Christ. I don't think there's any other place in Scripture that quite defines it as, um, as Paul does in this letter to the Colossians. We have the assurance that our redemption is sure because of the greatness of our Savior who accomplished that redemption. We can rest assured that our redemption is certain. Our redemption is sure because of the great work that was accomplished and the greatness of the one who accomplished it on our behalf. And so we'll see this morning uh, a couple of things. Uh, The redemption accomplished by Christ reflects his majesty. And the redemption accomplished by Christ reveals he's the head of the church. And the redemption accomplished by Christ brings us victory over sin and death. And the first thing, then, the redemption accomplished by Christ reflects his majesty. Redemption is a work that could only be done by one individual. It could only be done by God himself. God was the one who was offended. We were the ones who had no power to change. And so if redemption was going to happen, if forgiveness was going to come, it was going to be through the work of God. And the problem was God can't die. God can't suffer. Well, what was the solution then? Well, the solution was the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here in this text uh, that he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, he is the exact uh, expression of him. He is uh, God in the flesh. Christ makes visible the invisible God. In John 10:30, he says, I and the Father are one. And you remember in John 14:19, and Philip said, show us the Father, and it's enough. And he said, Philip, how can you say this? You've been with me so long. Uh, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And secondly, he is called the firstborn of creation. So our Savior is one who accomplished redemption. He is divine. He is God in the flesh. And he is the firstborn of creation. Well, what does this mean? Well, there was a uh, presbyter of Alexandria, Egypt, in the early centuries, second and third centuries, who said that uh, Christ was created and that this text supported that, that Christ was the first created being. And a lot of the early church councils dealt with the person and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Council of Nicaea, they determined that they were of the same substance, equal in power and glory. Well, this, are, this uh, what Arius taught, would teach that Christ was uh, subordinate and he was not co-eternal with the Father. And there are groups today who believe and teach this. And yet... They are right when they say John 3:16, I mean John 1:1 1, 1 can be quoted this way, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. Uh, grammatically, 
that verse can be translated that way. But it can also be translated the other way that we take it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there are seven other places in the Bible where Christ is called God. And so when it says here he is the firstborn of creation, it does not mean that he is the first created being. What it means is he is of first rank. He is of first importance. He has the greatest honor of any and all creation, keeping in mind this also reflects not simply the eternality and divinity of Christ, but the redemption that he accomplished. And in Psalm 80, 90, 89, verse 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, and the firstborn of creation. He is the heir of it. So this is an Old Testament prophecy, a messianic psalm, speaking of what was going to take place in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn from Scripture plainly that he is the creator of the universe. It says so in the Scriptures. Here in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. This says a lot about what kind of attitude we should have toward Christ. We understand something of his power. Uh, that Jesus himself is the agent of creation. John tells us that all things were made through him. And that apart from him, nothing was made that was made. Christ is the originator of all that is. Understanding that it was a triune God working in concert, but Christ was there creating, making the one who would take flesh upon himself was also eternal, eternally God. And not only did he create, what he tells us here in the text is he upholds the universe. He upholds all things. The book of Hebrews tells us this as well. If you would take a look at Hebrews chapter 1, those first few verses, which I absolutely love. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is also the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christ is not simply the one who created all things. Christ upholds the universe. And it holds together and it's sustained because of the work of God, not because of natural law. Do I believe natural law exists? Certainly it does. I believe in the law of gravity. That's why I hate mountains so much. Um. But it is God that sustains it. Can you imagine this universe that we know, this planet that we know existing by chance, that it simply came into being somehow and in some way, and the sun just came into being somehow and in some way, and the earth at the exact place by chance in the orbit so it can sustain life, and we have oxygen, all these things, air and all that. It's, it's nonsense. And we read that it is Christ that upholds us in our orbit. It is Christ that causes the sun to rise. As it says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Well, the world was made by Christ to be the place he would become incarnate and exhibit the wonder of redeeming love. That's why he created, to bring glory to his own name. All things were made by him for him to glorify him. All things were made by him, for him, and to glorify him. 
so that it is in view or with the redemption in view that Christ created. His thoughts are infinite. God has no new thoughts. He doesn't come up with a new and different idea. His knowledge is infinite. And so when he created, it was with the idea that the fall would occur, but he would redeem a people to himself by the work of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not by chance that these things took place at all. And the wondering mystery of providence is that though God controls all things, men are 100% accountable for the things that they do. For God has decreed all things, men are 100% accountable for the things that they do. And the greatness of Christ, his majesty was mostly revealed in his work of redemption. The incarnation of God taking flesh upon himself. God, Christ uh, keeping the law for us. Christ starting his church. Christ undergoing suffering for us. Christ dying for us. Christ being raised from the dead for us in order that we might have justification. We might be justified in the sight of God. And then Christ ascending up into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. And we all know that God does not have a literal right hand. God is non-corporeal. He has no physical substance. Christ does. The second person of the Trinity had that at the fullness of time. We read that Christ came. But God is non-corporeal. And so the reference here, the right hand of God, is a reference of the highest place to be of all creation. The highest place of honor is given to the Lord Jesus Christ who came and redeemed us for ourselves. This is who God incarnate. This is who Christ is, the creator of all things, who sustains all things and upholds all things and accomplished redemption for people who otherwise would have had no hope of being in heaven and no hope of having peace with God. Well, the second thing is the redemption accomplished by Christ uh, gives him the right or places him as the head of the church. What is the church? <clears throat> the church is not a building. You don't need a building to have a church. You can have a tent and have a church. You can have nothing and have a church. Because the church is the assembly of God's people that meet in a building that most people refer to as the church. This is simply a building that's not the church. Again, the church is a reference to the gathering of the people, a congregation gathered together for the purpose of worship. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the church is the body of Christ. We are the church. And the church is one. There are many different denominations, and there are many different languages spoken in various churches, and they're scattered throughout the world. And though there are some differences in the style of worship and differences in some views of baptism, 
it is still one church. The Apostle Paul tells us that in Scripture. And so that as believers, we should have a certain connection with Christians that we meet in other countries that we never met before. Because we are one body in Christ. We both have the same Lord. We both serve the same Lord. So that we understand that the true church is the people of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 5 this. So, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, how does this speak about how we should treat each other? So, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, of one another. Well, we should love one another. We should care for one another. We should pray for one another because we are in the body of Christ and we care about the body of Christ. At least we should. So the church, the people of God, the church is one. And the head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the pope. Not the preacher. Not an elder. Not a deacon. Not someone who gives a lot of money to the church. Christ is the head of the church, and Christ alone is the head of the church. Now, Christ has established officers in his church. He has established teaching elders, which are preachers. He has established ruling elders, which are to rule over the body of Christ. They are to shepherd God's people and deacons, which is also a spiritual office. All these men and these offices have been given authority by God. But they are accountable to God for how they do their work. You know, I think it's James that says not everyone should aspire to be a teacher, knowing that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Well, officers will incur a stricter judgment as well as we stand before the Lord. How well did you do? Uh, How seriously did you take your vows? Did you you take care of your people? Did you love your people? And did you see to it that the needs of the people were being met? There are three traits that cause, uh, that demonstrate a true church. The faithful preaching of Scripture. Some of the biggest churches in this country, you can ask this question, is the gospel faithfully preached there? Can you turn to it and hear them talking about Christ and about our need for redemption, our need for salvation, our need to walk in righteousness before Him? If that's not happening... That's not a true church. The second mark of the church, the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are to be administered faithfully in the church. And the last mark of the church is church discipline. Not an easy thing to do, but it has to be done. If we're going to be true to Christ and true for the care of His church... Church discipline has to take case. In the BCO, there are three steps offered to it. The first is exhortation. The second one is suspension from the sacraments. It can be definite or indefinite. And the final one is excommunication. Since I've been here, we've excommunicated four people, but it's after a long process of remonstrating with them and of pleading with them and of talking to them. And if we are failing to do that, we are failing to be what God calls us to be 
as his people. So Christ is the head of the church. Uh, he is um, glorious in all that he does. His redemption uh, was accomplished. Also, in that work of redemption, he defeated and brought an end to death. The redemption accomplished by Christ shouts out of his glory. Because Christ defeated sin and death as only he could do. He is the firstborn of the dead. Look at the book of Matthew. I love this text. Matthew chapter 27, starting with verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Okay, Jesus is dead. Hanging on the cross, he's dead. You know that from other texts, they put a spear in his side, and out came water and blood. Uh, he was dead. Now listen to this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened also, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. In the Old Testament, they had the... Uh, the feast of the first fruits. It would be the first fruits that came on, and they belonged to the Lord, and they would be used to give to the priest, and they would some would be offered on the altar. But the idea was there was going to be more to come. As you had this first expression of produce, of product, you had the assurance that there was more to come. If you've ever raised tomatoes, you know how exciting it is when that first one pops on, and then when that turns red. And you go in and have a tomato sandwich, you know there's going to be a lot more. Unless the bugs eat them, you know there's going to be a lot more. It's exciting. This is a picture of what's going to happen when Christ comes back again. The graves are going to be opened, and those who have fallen asleep will, raise, will be raised and be raised to life forever. This Christian is your destiny. This is what's going to happen to you as you remain in Christ and are faithful. And the most wonderful thing is we're going to be raised imperishable. We read in the scriptures without blemish, without sickness, and without sin. And we'll be raised imperishable all because of the greatness of our God who has redeemed us. And notice this in this text as well. He is the head of the church, the head of the, head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that, everything, that in everything he might have preeminence. Christ had preeminence in the Old Testament. He was God. That was Christ who appeared to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. 
But now you see his glory is even greater than it was because of what he's done. Because he came into the world and he accomplished salvation for a group of sinful people. He defeated sin and death and now is at the right hand of God. That he might have preeminence in all things. He accomplished this work. Do you see this? The resurrected Christ is the greatest of all creatures, all beings uh, in the entire creation. There's none like him. In order that he might have preeminence over all things we read here in the scripture. So Paul can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is scary. That's not what he says. You know that. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We saw last week, when we were looking at the book of Hebrews, that our God will never leave us nor forsake us. Do you see how majestic and great our God is? That we don't need to worry about things. We don't need to be fretful about things because our God is in control. And just grasp what a great comfort it is as we read this text and understand what Christ has done as he's still at work, the great comfort we have when we lose somebody we love. For we know from the scriptures they're with Christ. And he is able to bring them to glory and keep them in glory. Let's pray.